flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed, and he sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we do see light. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Now this morning, what I want to do is just kind of move along three lines as we look at this particular psalm of David. We'll begin with an overarching observation on the first four verses. We'll just give a summary of the first four verses in which David addresses the wicked condition. The second thing that we'll do is is look at a summary, a threefold summary of that wicked condition. And then thirdly, we will consider the antidote that David provides for that wicked condition. So here's the first observation that we want to make, and this is an overarching observation. I think it's important for us to understand that in this psalm, David in verses 1 through 4 it should be noted that he is not giving uh, solely a description of unbelievers. In other words, David is not just giving us a description of unbelievers because that's, that's sort of our tendency. Wherever we see wicked in the scriptures, we just think of those who are unregenerate. But my conclusion is this, that David in verses 1 through 4 is not describing the unbeliever But rather what he is doing is giving us an analysis of the fallen condition. And by fallen condition, I mean the general fallen condition which is common to all humanity. So therefore, David's words concerning the wicked in verses 1 through 4 are just as instructive for us, in fact, even more so instructive of us, because at least those who are regenerate would have a proper understanding of these things, because the unregenerate, they don't get it. So David is not really speaking to them. He's speaking to us, and he's speaking to us about the general fallen condition. And one of, this, it's, it, one of the reasons it's important for us to see this as a portrait of the natural man, is so that we as believers would be reminded of what we are doing battle with. In other words, the struggle of the Christian life is that those things, what David says of the wicked, is what what continues to be our issue even as we are in Christ. That is the old nature that remains within us. That is the, in, in other words, that which, we, with, uh, which remains in us, and this is what will remain in us until as long as, as John says, as long as we are in the flesh. This is the old us that, that we are exhorted, uh, in, in fact, what Paul calls the old man. And the old man uh, is, is something that we have to continue to, uh, to deal with because understand this, what makes Christians righteous in the sight of God is not the performance of righteousness by us, 
What makes us right in the eyes of God is that he credits to us the righteousness of another. And so our struggle is dealing with what we really are. So therefore, our, when, 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 and uh, one of the things I kind of work with young preachers on is when they come to me and they ask about, you know, want to preach Christ-centered and want to understand the doctrines of grace, one of the places that I take them before we even talk about preaching is I'll give them what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, that anyone who is in Christ Jesus becomes a new creation. Behold, all things are passed away and everything becomes new. So my question then to them is how do you understand that? Do you understand that as moral transformation? Or do you understand that as being a promise of what God has given in Christ? If they say moral transformation, then that tells me where we need to start. Because they don't have a clear understanding of the real issues and struggles of remaining sin. Anyone who thinks that being in Jesus means all old habits stop, all evil thoughts cease, and now you, you just become clean tabula rosa, that the slate is, is, is clean, and you just do everything that you do from now on is right. And every now and then you stumble. Brothers and sisters, if you think that is the Christian life, then you don't understand the Christian life. And so what, what David is describing in verses 1 through 4, when he talks about the wicked man, he's not just talking about those who are out there, but he is speaking to all of those. He is speaking to all of those, even to those who look to God by faith for his salvation. So this is an important, it's an important uh, distinction to make. That David is not referring to the wicked and then we're over here someplace else. No, David is presenting to us in verses 1 through 4 a portrait of the fallen, corrupt human nature. And this is given to us as a reminder of what we are often or what we ought to be continuously fighting against. This is what we are putting off. This is what explains the, the dilemma and the struggle that Paul speaks of in Romans 7 when he says, when I would do good, evil is always present. Now, when he says evil is, not, not, is always present, he's not saying that evil always shows up right when I want to do good. No, evil is always present because it's in you. <laughs> it's in you. It's not always present because, oh, all of a sudden, you know, when I just, when I do, do good, then here come those, here comes my friend from down the street. No, even if your friend from down the street doesn't come, you take the enemy with you. This is why Paul in Colossians 3, in verse 1, he says that if you have been raised with Christ, then set your mind on things that are above where Christ is seated. Set your affection on things that are above. And then he goes on to say this great statement, by the way. He says, because you died and your life is hidden in Christ. You say, yep, that sounds like that victorious Christian living, right? That sounds like everyone is a new creature and we are morally transformed. But then he comes right back in verse 5 and he says, therefore, put to death the members of the flesh that remain within you. Now, that's challenging, isn't it? 
And so what Paul is, is confirming is what David is laying out here. That when he speaks of the wicked, he's not speaking of unbelievers in particular. But he is speaking of fallen humanity in general. Now with that as, as the beginning, as, as our starting place, the second thing I want to do, because David, I actually kind of went through it and it seems like there's seven particulars that you can look at. But what I want to do is summarize Summarize the three most definitive characteristics of the fallen nature that David gives us in verses 1 through 4. And those fall along three particular lines. So it's a threefold summary or um, it's a summarizing of the three most definitive characteristics of our fallen nature. And as we look at them, we want to highlight them because we must always be aware of these characteristics. They will remain with us until we go home. In fact, I would say that a huge part of our spiritual warfare is identifying these three characteristics, confronting, confronting them when we see them and turning from them. But three things. Number one, we see in verse one, he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God. We mentioned this the other week that when the scriptures speak of fear of God, it's, it's usually one of two things, if not both. On the one hand, it means dread, to be afraid of, physically afraid of, not going there because you're afraid of it. And in a sense, sinful creatures have a right to be afraid of God. <laughs> uh, we, we do have a right to be afraid. We, guilt makes us afraid. And, and so, so therefore, there is a sense of fear of God that is innate to our fallen nature because guilt makes us afraid of a holy, just God. And certainly, uh, as whistling, as, as, as uh, unbelievers sometimes, as a way of whistling through the graveyard, they convince themselves there is no God because they hope there's nothing. If, he, if there is a God and they are unrepentant, then they know they have an issue, so they tell themselves there is no God. But that's not what, what David means here. I don't think it's, and certainly it's not solely what he means here when he says there's no fear of God. It might be included in, in the unbeliever that, that there is no dread of God. So if we convince ourselves that there is no God, anybody uh, as a child, were you ever afraid of boogeymen? Right? And then you grow, hopefully, to the point where you realize there are no boogeymen sleeping under your bed <laughs> and in your closet. And so, but, but as long as you are convinced, you need a light on. Right? But when you are no longer convinced, when you are no longer afraid of that which doesn't exist, it emboldens you in the dark. And sometimes... Uh, in fact, unbelievers present Christian faith as one who uh, the reason, the only reason we, we believe in God is because it's, it's like it's the spiritual equivalent to, to a boogeyman. You are afraid. So, so you, you need something to kind of tide you over. That's why someone says, you know, uh, who's in Marx, it says that religion is the opium of the masses. It's, it's kind of a way to deal with the death and the reality that we can't explain. So we explain it away by saying God. And so, therefore, the height of unbelief is to reach that, that level of intellectual maturity when you say there are no more boogeymen. So, therefore, I'm not afraid. 
And that, that is part of, that's, that's part of what David means here. There is a segment of unbelief that is so convinced that they are their, the master of their own fate that there is no dread, no sense of a, of a holy other to whom we are accountable. That's part of what he means, but that's not totally what he means. When he says for the unbeliever, for the wicked, there is no fear of God. And certainly those of us who are believers, we, we do have a sense of dread, knowing the terror of God, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. But, 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 but there's something else that he means by that word fear. It's reverence and respect. No, no sense of reverence of, uh, and respect. Surely they can't be in awe or afraid of anything they don't think exists. But in our fallen state, here's where we are. We don't have the right respect for God. No sense of reverence. In fact, even those who sometimes come to their own way of, of knowing God and relating to God, we go out of our way to try to make him like us. And so people think, that, oh, I can talk to God any old, any old kind of way. He's, he's my homeboy. You know, he's my this, that, and the other. But it's, the funny thing is, brothers and sisters, God has already gone out of his way to identify with us. That's what the whole, that's what the incarnation is about. God does friend us in Christ. But that doesn't, because he is present, because he identifies with our, our earthly struggles and existence, doesn't mean he's not to be respected. Did any of you grow up with, with teenagers who lived in your neighborhood who talked about how cool their parents were? In fact, I, I had friends that could call their parents by their first name, right? And they would always talk about their, their cool parents. And, and as I grew older, here's what the, the thing that I understood, that there are two categories of cool parents. There are some parents that are cool simply because they identify with their children or whatever, and, and they're, they're not the, the strict disciplinarians and giving them a, that you got to be in by 7 o'clock and that sort of thing. And in which case, there's still respect. But then there's also the, the kind of cool parents where the children had no respect. They didn't honor them. I had a friend that was the same age I was, and his mother would call him, and he'd act like it was his older sister calling him. What? What do you want? What do you want? And I'm looking like him, what's wrong with you? Whoa. And when no shoe came out, I'm wondering, whoa, what's wrong with mom? <laughs> right? Here is one of the main characteristics of fallen humanity. We don't have sense enough how to be afraid. And we've lost a sense of reverence for God. We don't have the respect for him. You say, well, but we are believers. We, 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 that's changed for us. And that, that is true. But understand this, brothers and sisters. That even though we are believers, we still wrestle with sin. And one of the, part of the, what, what flavors our continuing wrestling with sin is that we continually wrestle with right respect for God. And our continuing sin 
is rebellion against his authority. So David says what is characteristic, one of the chief characteristics of the unbeliever is that they don't have a right respect for God. And we, likewise, even though we are believers, even though we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, our continuing sinful behavior can be explained because we do not, in that instance, in that situation, we don't have a right respect for God. When we sin against those that God has placed over us, when we sin against our brothers, when we feel free to say whatever we want to say, however we want to say it, to those who have been purchased by the blood of God, no matter what we say in our songs, no matter what we say in our testimony, it's evidence of our failure to rightly respect God. One of the things that I learned growing up is is respecting my parents didn't mean just when I was present with them. Showing proper respect for my parents meant how I saw, how I, how I conducted myself in their absence. And sometimes, even as Christians, we think, in fact, I was going to say that we think the only time we're showing respect for God is when we are in his house. But that doesn't, what we, how we reverence God sometimes on Sunday morning is not how we reference, reverence him when we meet in our meetings, right? Here's what, what, what is characteristic of the people of God. Here's something characteristic of all of the image bearers of God is that we have, a, we have a problem with fearing him. We are either too stupid to be afraid or we're too arrogant to be respectful. And that's a, that's a continuing struggle. We're going, to have, we're going to struggle with that. There are times that we're going to show more reverence than others, but, but essentially part of one of the, the, the chief characteristics of the fallen condition is to have no respect for God. As a matter of fact, you notice the way David couples that in verse 1. In fact, he begins by saying that, that wickedness, transgression, speaks to the wicked. And the reason transgression is free to speak, and he's personifying sin. The reason sin is, feels free to speak to the wicked is because there's no filters. You see, why, why do you think, if, if you say, how come people keep bringing me all that gossip? The answer is simple, you. You're the reason they keep gossiping to you because you allow it. Here is part of the character, here's, here's one of the chief characteristics of our fallen nature. Wickedness speaks to us because we don't have a right respect for God. You respect him. Trust me, the devil ain't going to say certain things to some folk. He knew exactly what to say to Peter and when to say it. But what he said to Peter, he didn't say to John. Brothers and sisters, here's one of the characteristics of the fall. We don't have right reverence for God. We don't fully respect him to the degree that we should. Here's the second characteristic that, that David gives us. And that is, it's, it's found primarily in, in verse 3 or verse, uh, verse 2. He says, but he flatters himself in his own eyes. 
Again, this is, this is, this is true of, of the fallen condition. Self-flattery. But it's not just any kind of self-flattery. It's self-flattery with a motive. And the motive of this self-flattery is to minimize your sin. Look at the way he expresses it in verse 2. He says, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hate it. In other words, the self-flattery of our fallen condition has a way of minimizing sin, or to put it another way, euphemizing it, or, or, or uh, yeah, euphemizing it, speaking of our sin in euphemistic terms. You know what a euphemism is? A euphemism is a pleasant way of saying something that's not pleasant. So instead of saying that I rebel against God's command to worship, Here's what we say. I'm lazy. We call it lazy because lazy is not on the Ten Commandments sinless. But the scripture says thou shalt not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. It doesn't say don't be lazy. Right? We know all the Proverbs that talk about industry and so forth. And so we'll say, well, I'm tired rather than I'm rebellious. I don't have time, rather than I haven't prioritized this over that. There's a way that we can, euphemi- we can speak euphemistically about our sins. And so the way we flatter ourselves is I would never fill in the blank. I would never murder anyone. But don't get me by myself in a good gossip session, right? Here's what, what, what David says. That's, he wants us to see that. And he wants us to see that, that this is what wickedness is. It's not always breaking in people's houses. It's not, no, it's not all the stuff that we profile people for. No, wickedness is the condition that causes us to not have a right respect for God and that causes us to, be, to, to flatter ourselves to such a degree that we'll say, I wouldn't, I wouldn't harm a fly. But the reputation of my sister and the reputation of my brother in my hands, <laughs> boy, don't, that's a whole different story. But I wouldn't harm a fly. But when we speak words of vitriol, when we speak ill against our brothers and sisters, God would rather you harm a fly. You see, here's what David says. He says they, they flatter themselves. They flatter themselves to the point that he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out. And then when it is pointed out, it's not hated. Instead of being found out, instead of being hated, it's just how I am. And people will say that. You know, you say, well, you were rude. You did this. Well, but that's just how I am. So? <laughs> Duh. <laughs> and that's not a confession. That's, this, that's just people, again, boasting in what they are. Well, I'm just direct. But don't you know that in and of yourself you are wicked? 
And you need to check you. That's, what, that's, that's the whole point of being in Christ. So that we can go back and see ourselves for what we really are. And at the end of it, here's what we really are. We do not respect God. And here's what we are. We flatter ourselves. So that when our sins are elevated, when they are brought out, we excuse them with euphemisms. So that even if it is a part of us, that's just me. And we don't hate it. In fact, oftentimes we own it. But here's a third characteristic that's definitive characteristic of of our fallen condition. In verse 4, we assign ourselves to a path that is not good. That's, what, that's, that's a way, my, my way of expressing it. In verse 4, here's what David says. He, he plots trouble on his bed and he sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Speaking of the, the unbeliever, that he sets, a, he sets for himself a course that is not good puts himself on that path. In fact, if you follow the trans, uh, the, 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 if you follow the, the development of the thought, he says the person, the wicked person, transgression speaks deep to their heart because they have no respect for God. So since transgression knows that it has a ready audience with the wicked, it speaks. And while you're on your bed, you're thinking, and and it's plotting so that you put yourself on a course that's not good. I love how often God intercedes while we're on our path towards destruction. And he'll say, no, no, stop. He'll, He'll put up signs, stop. Isn't that what we see in the very first, in, in, the, in the, first, uh, the first murder in Genesis chapter 4 when Cain, his, he's downtrodden because God has received the offering of his brother and has rejected him and his offering. And God goes to him, he says, look, Cain, I know what you're thinking, but you've got an opportunity. You don't have to do that. Evil is lying at your door. Sin is waiting to take you hostage. You don't have to go down that course. Don't let your fallen nature, don't let your culture, don't let somebody coach you into going down a path that you don't have to go down. One of those things that was early on for me, and I learned this because I wasn't that big in elementary school. I was a little guy, and I, you know, I knew, and I didn't have any brothers. I had to defend myself, but it, was, it seemed like it was a written law of elementary school. That if somebody talks about your mama, it's time to go. You just, it's just time to fight. And trust me, I had my fair share of fights. But one of the things I learned early on, that it wasn't worth fighting about, was what some seven-year-old who lives on the other side of town says about my mother that they don't know. So you can talk about my mom. And then I was proud. My mother come to class or she come to, you know, come to my school for something, looking all gorgeous and beautiful. And now that's what you're talking about. So you, you've, seen, you've seen her. <laughs> and this is what you have to say. Dude, that one doesn't fly with me. That's not going to make me fight. Brothers and sisters, we... 
we, we sometimes let the wrong influences in. And it puts us on a path where we have to do, we have to act according to what our, our circle of friends expect us to do. We put ourselves on a path where we do not reject evil. That's part of our fallen nature. It's, it's, you can go on and flesh out the details, but we don't reject evil. I shared Wednesday night a story that I, I heard an interview on a podcast uh, a couple weeks ago about uh, something that took place in an all-white presbytery up in the western part of North Carolina uh, where there was, there was um, well, racial prejudice that surfaced among these white Presbyterians. And, and one of the pastors, the pastor of the church, saw a post from one of the elders in his church. This is in the 2000s. Saw a post where he basically claimed uh, blacks as being intellectually inferior and so forth. And he did it and he made his case and he posted it proudly. And the pastor saw it and checked it. And then it ended up becoming a big issue within the presbytery. And the person that I heard in the interview, who I later called and just had a long conversation with, he was saying that, that when he heard about it, he went to the side of the pastor. And they challenged it, and the local presbytery embraced the elder for a minute, and then eventually the national presbytery came together, and they removed this elder and rebuked him and, and put him under the, discipline, under the dis- discipline of the church because of his racist views, which is inconsistent with Christianity. So as the brother's telling me this, and I had heard the interview, and I was blown away just by the interview, and then I talked to him, and he's sharing the same story. So at the end of it, I said, brother, I just want to say thank you for speaking up for all of the African-American people who were not present, but yet your conscience would not allow you to be at ease, even if you disagree, because sometimes we can disagree and be sinfully silent. When black folk weren't present, here's nothing but white folk, and he didn't say, no, he didn't back down. No, he stood up. Brothers and sisters, sometimes our fallen nature, if we don't catch ourselves, our fallen nature can put us on a path of destruction to the point when evil is present. It doesn't say that. In fact, I love what David is is indicating here. He's not indicating that you won't recognize evil as being evil. But the problem is when evil is present and you recognize it and do not reject it. You say, oh, that's the unbeliever. No, it's not just the unbeliever. It's the wicked. And the wicked is you and I. Three Defining characteristics of the fallen nature. No respect for God. No, no, no genuine respect for God. And also a sense where we flatter ourselves to the point that we don't even identify our own sin. And then putting ourselves on a course that is not for our good. And on that course, it allows us to receive that which we should be rejecting. I can't think of how many times in my own life 
as a believer and as an unbeliever, when I realized that I had compromised myself to such a degree that that which I knew was evil, that somehow I let it be okay. Brothers and sisters, our road to repentance as we deal with sin is to deal with the reality of that situation. What is it that I have tolerated that I know to be evil, but somehow I did not reject it? So David gives us an overarching summary, not of the unbeliever, but of the fallen condition. The three main characteristics, and you can tease them out, connect them to other things, but the three main characteristics of the fallen condition is no respect for God, self-flattery, and then assigning to ourselves a path that is destructive. Well, that brings us to the third and final category that we want to look, here, look at here, and that is the antidote that David offers to the children of God. And he does offer an antidote. You see, in verses 7 through 9, in verses 1 through 4, he's given us a description of the wicked, which is our fallen condition. Then he gives us, in verses 7 through 9, a, a remedy for the children of God as we are confronted with the reality of remaining sin. And by the way, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that our doctrine of sin and salvation is only as good as our doctrine of remaining sin. Three things. Three, three things here. First off, David offers as an antidote to the children of God the comfort of God's commitment or his covenant commitment and devotion to his redeemed. He offers to them the, the, the comfort of God's covenant commitment and devotion to his redeemed. In verse 7, that phrase that we've looked at ever since we've been going through the Psalms, the phrase that continues to come up over and over and over again is your steadfast love. And we've said before that what is meant by steadfast love, the term that's translated here as steadfast love, is God's covenant love to his people. And God's covenant love is his covenant commitment and faithfulness to his people. Now notice that in the top part of this verse, of verse 7, David simply says that uh, how precious is your steadfast love. In other words, David simply says that God's covenant faithfulness is precious to us. It is highly valued, highly esteemed. But then notice that in the B part of the verse, he then illustrates this truth of God, of how precious God's steadfast love is. So he says in the top part of the verse, how precious is your steadfast love. And then the B part of the verse, he illustrates, or he, he makes his point by illustrating the, what God's covenant faithfulness is like to us. And here's what he says in essence, that God's covenant commitment to us is the equivalent to the wings of a great bird that provide covering and protection for everyone who comes under it. Notice again in verse, in verse 7, he says how, your, uh, how precious is your steadfast love. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. In other words, David is indicating that all of God's people who exposed in this world 
to everything that is said of us in verses 1 through 4, the place that we can find protection. And what do we need to be protected from, by the way? We need to be protected from our portrait. We need to be protected from our failure to properly fear God. We need protection from our our capacity to minimize our own sinfulness. We need protection from the pathway that we put ourselves on when we reject the path of God's way. We need protection from not rejecting evil. And here's what David is saying, that God's steadfast love is like the wings of a great bird. That the children of God, and he specifies here, the children of God is not every human creature. It's those to whom he has has revealed his redeeming love. And here's what we do. We run and take refuge under his wings. I think of the words of Jesus in the course of his earthly ministry. At the end of his earthly ministry, actually, And he wept over Jerusalem. He says, oh, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you like a mother hen. How I would have gathered you under my wings. But the problem is, he says, you don't know what makes for your peace. If you knew that you were in trouble and if you knew where peace was, you'd find my wings ready to take you. What David is saying here in verse 7 is that for the people of God, because we identify ourselves in verses 1 through 4, when we are exposed for being what is said of us in verses 1 through 4, here's what we can be confident of. We can take refuge and find protection under the wings of God's covenant provisions. Here's the second thing that he says as a part of an antidote. So the first antidote is really the knowledge of God's covenant. God's covenant faithfulness, his promise to redeem us. It's repeated actually to us in Jeremiah 31, but also quoted in Hebrews chapter 10. And their lawless deeds and their sins I will remember no more. Here's what gives us confidence as we see ourselves, more of ourselves really on display in verses 1 through 4. Here's the confidence that we have that those who seek covering from God, he will remember our sins no more. Here's the second antidote, and that is the resources of God's house. The resources of God's house is the answer to all that is true of us as laid out in verses 1 through 4. Again, here's what he says in verse verse 5. He says, they feast, or verse 8, they feast on the abundance of your house. I think in some old King James translations it says the fatness of your house, and I I wish I could just carry that over. I just, I like fat food. <laughs> so that's, that's what resonates to me. I, that's why I love a good ribeye steak with marbling around the edges. Just enough fat to make your mouth greasy and the taste buds say, thank you. And I think there's, there's an intentionality to this. God wants us to feast in his house. But it's not sort of a tofu kind of feast. He wants us to know that what he has provided for us is equivalent to good good ribeye to the body is what God's provision in his house is to the soul. 
What is it that people who have been exposed as being not respectful of God, who have flattered themselves, who have put themselves in harm's way, where they no longer reject evil, at least in that situation, what do we need most? What is it that would feed us as we, are take, as we take covering and refuge under his wings? What do we need? We need to come into his house and have him serve up a big old heaping dose of I forgive you. He need, we need to come into his house and to have an overflowing plate with the grease dripping off of it. Of pardon for all of your sins. You need to hear in the midst of your struggles with this, that, and the other. Hear your father say as you are stinking with your rebellion. That there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He says the abundance of God's house is a feast for those who are convicted by the description and portrait of verses 1 through 4. Brothers and sisters, when we come into God's house, we have the pardon of sin. We have the irrevocable privilege of sonship or being the children of God. And we have the Oh, we have the unspeakable peace of being reconciled with God. That's what ought to fill us up. That's what ought to motivate us as we serve and as we go from this place. That when we come into God's house, whatever else we get, you may not get an assignment to do and be. But listen, you may not find your purpose. You may not find your significance. That's, all of that is, is tertiary and secondary. You might not find fulfillment of being the 21st century woman. You might not find the success for being the professional, the right professional that you ought to be. But when you come into God's house, you ought to be filled up with the fatty food of forgiveness. And with the grace of God that covers all of your sins. You need to be reminded that you are a child of his. I know you, you look rebellious, right? We, we act, we've gone out of our way to be rebellious. And God brings us weakly into his presence to say, that's mine. The one with the spiked hair, that's mine. The blue hair, that's mine. All them tattoos, all of it, you're mine. You're mine. You did everything that you could to try to prove and distance yourself from me. But I love you. Sit down at this table and let me give you the broken body that was broken for you. Let me give you the cup of your forgiveness. Let me announce my grace to you because I know what you I know it when you get to the parking lot, but that's okay. I love you anyhow. And so somehow the transfer of nutrients from God's grace ought to translate into different decisions by God's people. That's the intent here. But brothers and sisters, God's resources for our journey through remaining sin is the knowledge that our sins have been pardoned, that we are the privileged children of God, 
and that we have been given unspeakable and irrevocable peace with him. Here's the final, final resource that we have that we ought to receive when we come into God's house. That's found in verse 9. It's a great statement. He says, for with you is the fountain of life. And here's the part. In your light do we see light. What a wonderful statement. And here's what David is saying, and, and I pray that this is true of us. You see, why does good seem, or why does evil seem good to us, even the children of God? It's because of the light that we're looking at it in. We're looking at it in a particular light. Why is it that it seems okay for us to say and act in, in, in any given way? It's because of the light in which we look at the situation. And here's what God does when we come into his presence. Is he not only recharges our light, but he shows us what real light is. And we pray that God would give us the light of the knowledge of his grace in the face of Christ so that my evil thoughts and my evil words, which are at home among people like me, all of my circle are good with me. But don't let me just be content with my circle. Let me give me a light that allows a white brother to speak up against racism, even though he's surrounded by other white faces. Give me a light that would allow me to see me as I truly am, out of Christ and in Christ. Give me the light of your grace so that I would see even my good is not good enough. But I can also see that I am held by a firmer grip than my own personal obedience. Give me the light to see grace as it is, God as he is, and my sin as it is, and my salvation as it is. We all think, we all act, and we all live according to a light. There is a light that allows you to think that whatever you're doing is okay. But here's the challenge of the gospel. It gives us a brighter light so that we would see the sufficiency of what God has given in Christ. And what God has given us in Christ would be the incentive for revolution in thinking as well as in acting. David describes us in verses 1 through 4. But his admonition is that we don't have to be like that because God has brought us into his house and he's fed us with the fatness of his house and he's given us the covering of his covenant so that we can see better, think better, speak better, and act better. I pray, oh God, that we would see light in his light. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, thanking you for your word. We thank you for the somber and sober reminder of who we are in our natural state, even 30, 40, 50 years as believers. 
This is what still cleaves to us. Strengthen us to see it and never take comfort in anything that is contrary to your word and your will. But most of all, Father, as we gather in your house, continue to set your feast before us and whet our appetites for your feast so that we would be strengthened and nurtured by it for your service and your glory. We thank you for your light, which shines the light on our darkness and gives us a true light in which we are to walk. Thank you, Father, for what you've given us in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. 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 As we prepare, we see our deacons. We have our deacons.